you to take your Bibles tonight, if you would please, and let's open them to Philippians chapter 2. And we're continuing our study in the introduction of the second chapter. And this is preparation for some of the most exalted words that we find in Scripture. Paul is going to tell us about one of his grandest themes, one of the greatest portions of Scripture, as he talks about the kenosis of Christ. And that means the the emptying of Christ, the willingness of Jesus to step down from the throne of glory and to be made in the likeness of men. And the basis for which Christ would do that is really the godly trait that he has of humility. And in the beginning of this chapter, there's a plea that the Apostle Paul makes for that same kind of humility which will result in a unified Christian body. So this first part then of the chapter is about unity, and Paul tells us how we can achieve it. And then we'll see a little bit more of that as we get into a later part of the chapter as well. But the way to achieve the unity that we have in Christ is to turn everything that we are completely upside down, turn ourselves inside out, because what Christ asks us to do is totally against our human nature. He tells us that we must put others before self. Now, my outline tonight is rather brief. I'm not sure the message will turn out to be that way, but the outline is brief. The subject is, who am I? And this is not going to be a discovery or a questionnaire about uh, a particular person in the Bible, but this is a message about personal introspection. So I hope you'll really uh, understand the question a little bit better by the time that the message is through. But if you'll take your Bibles now, if you'd stand with me, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to begin reading at verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 4. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 1. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind." Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the time we get to spend in your word tonight. Lord, open our hearts to uh, your word. Help us to learn something, and we know that this will help us all as we study your word this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you remember when we talked about this first verse of chapter 2, there are four ifs that are contained in this verse. And as I told you in the sermon last time, these are ifs of argument. They're not ifs of doubt. And the argument that Paul is making is that you are to consider what he says in this first verse. And if he says here, what he says here is true, then what follows we ought to follow. He says, uh, if, if you believe in Christ, if Christ is persuasive, if there is a reason to love, if there is a reason for fellowship in the Spirit, if there is a reason for, reason for tenderness and compassion, then he says, go on and fulfill the will of Christ, which is unity. Now, what Paul asks us and what Christ asks us here is not possible for a person, not possible for a man in his natural condition. The natural order that we all have is me first, you second, and God third. And we think that we could adjust that order somewhat and we could change things around a little bit and say, well, at least we could make it this way. Let's make us first, let's make God second, and then others will be third. So then we can think we can just actually move God up one notch in that order. 
But the fact of the matter is that when you are first, God is always going to be last. God wants us to reverse that order completely to where we consider him first, others second, and dead last must come us. Now, the natural man does not like that kind of thinking. And a natural man won't do it because he has to have a change of heart to come to this place. So it takes regeneration, it takes the operation of the Holy Spirit, and none other than those who are born again, changed by the Spirit of God, can think the way that Paul talks about in this passage. Now, two weeks ago, I, I, I spoke about arguments for unity, and tonight I want to begin uh, showing you why those arguments are ignored by the natural man. Now, first of all, I want you to notice tonight the root of discord. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Peace, love, and harmony are not natural human traits. You start reading the Bible, start in the very beginning, the book of Genesis, and before you've gone three chapters, you find discord. You go four chapters, and you find murder. You go six chapters, and you find out that God has had to destroy the entire world with a flood. Only eight people were saved. And the reason that God did that was because of discord. Everybody was out of harmony with God. So Genesis starts out with discord. That's when Adam disobeyed God. And even that discord was, was uh, caused by a previous discord. Satan, who tempted Adam and Eve to sin, was the, was the first to show discord. He was the first one to enter into rebellion. And the same reason... That, that Satan went into rebellion is the same reason that we go into the very same thing today. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole story of Satan's rebellion tonight. We talked about that extensively at the end of the Ephesians series a few months ago. But I do want to say this, that it was Satan's desire to take over God's place as the supreme ruler of this universe. And if you remember, Satan didn't ask to share God's throne. He didn't ask God to move over a little bit and let him have a part of it. Satan wanted to have it all. And so Satan said, I will be like the Most High. These are the words that he spoke in Isaiah chapter 14. He said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And those words, like the Most High, meant that Satan wanted the authority of kingship. It means that he wants ownership of all things. And then when he tempted Adam and Eve and they accepted that temptation and they entered into the sin, went through the temptation and entered into it, what was the desire of Adam and Eve when they did that? Wasn't it this? That Satan promised them that if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. Now that's practically the same thing that Satan said himself. He said, I will be like the Most High. And unfortunately, folks, man has never relinquished that desire. So what is it then that sows the seeds of discord among all people? Let's talk about a couple of things. The first one is personal ambition. Personal ambition, that's number one, because man wants to be the authority. Every one of us thinks that we're entitled to have whatever it is that we want, and we have an ambition to reach that goal, and we will do everything it takes for us to get to that place. In the heart of every single person, there is really a desire to be God. And when you take billions of people all over the world 
and every single person desires to be God, it's only natural, or the obvious conclusion is, we are going to run into discord. In our desire to be greater than others and to have our way, somehow, somewhere, no matter who it is, we're all going to run into a conflict with some other person. My desire to satisfy me will run into your desire to satisfy you. Now, that might seem like a gross oversimplification of things, but the truth is that all strife, all conflict, all wars that ever happened in the entire history of the world boils down to this one principle, and that is the human desire to obey our will rather than God's will. You see, if Adam had just simply obeyed God in the very beginning, if he'd gone after God's will, there never would have been any strife. And that's because when we go in God's will, all of us are traveling in the same direction. We're never going against one another. We won't be opposites when we're going in the way that God goes. You know, it's like driving down the freeway. On, on Highway 101, there's you know, two sections of lanes. One goes north and one goes south. But on, if you're on one of those sides, everybody travels in the same direction and pretty much everybody gets along all right. But you take somebody coming up an off-ramp going the wrong way against the traffic, and it's not long before some catastrophic result happens. And that's exactly the way it is with our lives. In, in our lives, we are going against God, traveling in the opposite direction, the opposite way, and we're going to run into trouble. Now, sometimes with man-to-man, we will travel together for a time, for a little while, we can get along with each other. But eventually, our, our uh, uh, differences and our personal ambitions are going to come in conflict with one another. That's why there has been no single human government that has existed all the way back to the time of Adam. And that's because eventually all people run into conflict. And that's why you don't have a government like that. And that's why today when the world, our government, when presidential candidates... Uh, talk about peace among men, they're just simply spitting in the wind. There is not going to be any peace. Peace requires a fundamental change of the human nature. It requires for man to have a change of heart. And that's why there never will be a government plea for unity that will work. Nothing that, that when, a, when the government appeals to the higher values of man, so to speak, nothing is ever going to convince any person to live in permanent peace with others. It just can't happen. Now, it's interesting to uh, see what people think about the goodness of man. And people think, well, if we could just cultivate that inherent goodness that's in us, then we will be able to get along. Many of you may remember the story of Anne Frank. Anne Frank was a young girl who lived in Germany uh, just prior to around World War II. And uh, she and her family were, were in Germany when the Nazis took over, and they were Jews, and so they fled Nazi Germany and went to, uh, to the Netherlands, I believe it was. And while they were in the Netherlands, they... Uh, the, the Nazis came there. They took over the Netherlands as well. And um, for two years, Anne Frank and her family hid out in her father's office building for fear of detection of the Nazis. For two years, they did that. Well, finally, they were, uh, they were someone turned them in, and so they were taken into concentration camps. They were betrayed. And Anne Frank uh, died in one of those concentration camps. But during the time that they were living in that office building for fear of detection, Anne Frank kept a diary. 
And that diary was found at the end of World War II, and they turned it into a best-selling book, The Diary of Anne Frank. And there's something that she wrote in that diary that was interesting. She made a statement. She said, I still believe that in spite of everything, people are really good at heart. That was a noble statement, but it was unproven since the history of man. And since the, hit, the time of Anne Frank, it still remains unproven. You know what the Bible says about the human heart? Jeremiah wrote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so it's the evil heart of man that drives this personal ambition and that will never allow natural men to live in peace and harmony. There will not be unity. So the root of discord is, first of all, personal ambition. But there's something else here as well. There's also a desire for personal acclaim. Every person has an inflated opinion of himself. Now, these traits are, they are pronounced more in some people than in others. But none of us is exempt from this deceitful ego. All of us have a natural way of thinking. We think that we're right. And when others don't agree with us, we don't understand why they don't agree with us. Our opinion is always better than someone else's opinion. And my opinion drives the way that I act and the things that I do. Now, that was a mindset that was uh, combated by the Apostle Paul continually among the Greeks and the Romans. You remember when Paul is writing Corinthians, he said, the Greeks seek after wisdom. They were always musing after new things. They were always trying to figure things out for themselves, always considering new ideas. And one thing that was totally foreign to them that they would not consider is this Christian message that said that we need to be humble people. In the Greek mind, to be humble was a sign of weakness. And they never would accept that. And if you look at the character of many of the Roman emperors, you'll find that there was nothing in their heart but a lust for power and a desire for self-worship. We've been studying in the uh, book of Revelation and talking about the seven churches of Asia. And on a couple of occasions, at least so far, I've talked about how some of those cities that those churches were in were centers for emperor worship. And you really, when you think about that, you wonder how could someone even think that way? I mean, here is the, the Roman emperor. He knows where he came from. He knows what his limitations are. And yet he still believes that he can be a god. That's the deceitfulness of the human heart. Man's heart can do that to us. The desire for acclaim and an overinflated ego, that's a characteristic of nearly every world leader. There's a story in the book of Acts about Herod, who was willing to be called to God. You may remember this, but I was reminded of this story one night when uh, Clarissa and I were sitting, this past summer, we were sitting on the couch at home, we were watching a TV program, and on this TV program, they were explaining about these different organisms that can get into your body and live as parasites. And one of the things they talked about was this disgusting tapeworm. And there was a fellow there that they showed that got one of these tapeworms into his intestines, and this thing grew and grew and grew, and they said it could grow to 30 feet in length. And that reminded me of this story in Acts chapter 12. Let me read you just a part of this. Acts chapter 12, verse, beginning in verse 21. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. 
I don't know if that was a tapeworm or not, but that, that show, that just made me think about this. And did you know that the Jewish historian Josephus confirmed this account by Luke? That tells us, of course, that Luke was no fluke. But Herod was a typical, he was typical of the leaders of his time. Discord was in their heart, and that's a result of the vain ideas that man has about himself. And we're never going to get over that until the human heart is conquered, not until we are changed into something that is so radically different from what we are will we ever have produced in us the humility of Christ. Now, folks, that's one of the reasons, really, why I can't understand why anyone would teach and preach that it's possible for a man to change his nature and to trust in Christ, to become born again without a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit that must work beneath his consciousness in order to change his will so that he can believe. I remember the prospective missionary who wrote on his questionnaire the one that he sent back to the church. He said, I believe in total depravity, but I do not believe in total inability. And my question is, why not? Why don't you believe in total inability? When you see what a man is in his being, when you see what your nature is, what is there in man that is spiritually enabling? There's nothing in us. Has anybody ever lived a perfect life? Has anybody ever lived without sinning? Not one single person. And yet that is exactly what God requires. And so a person who comes to Christ must have already vested himself of all self-help. If you have some ability towards salvation, then that means that part of your salvation comes by self-help. And the Bible never teaches that. A person who comes to Christ must see himself as nothing and totally abhorrent. When you read Scripture, what you find is that Isaiah said, Woe is me! I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. David said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The apostle Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. And there's not one of those men that could have made that kind of affirmation if they did not have a change of heart. Man simply cannot do this on his own. We won't do it naturally. And you look at Paul. You look at the the zeal and the dedication that he had in his religion. He stated that he was above all. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrew and a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a persecutor of God's people. And he did those things because he thought he was right. He thought God was on his side. He was in the right path and acceptable to God. He said, I'm a great Pharisee. But it wasn't until God struck him down on the road to Damascus that he realized that he was absolutely nothing. The problem with the Apostle Paul was a problem of his heart. It had to be changed. And only till he was changed would he ever admit that he was really a vile, wicked sinner. When you read Scripture, when you read Paul, you can't get anything less than that out of his writings. So you see, these are things that are the root of discord. It's the fallen, depraved, sinful nature that must be changed to be brought into conformity with Christ. So the root of all discord is really our evil heart that has to be changed that will never be accomplished inwardly by man's desire. No person ever has the desire to do this. It has to be supernaturally implanted there by the work of God through the Holy Spirit. Now, that brings me then to point number two tonight, and this is the resource for accord. The root of discord can only be reversed by the resource for accord. Remember that Paul is not writing to non-Christians here. 
He has no expectation at all that there's any unbeliever who could pick up the words that he's about to say and put them into practice. It's totally impossible. So he's writing to people whose hearts have been changed. And these are people, just like you and I, who are believers in Christ, who have the ability to enact the things that he says here. Now, the problem with all of us, though, is that we all have the old nature that's still present with us. And what our tendency to do is to follow that old nature, to give in to the dictates of our old nature and the old will, and rather than following God. As long as we're in the flesh, we're going to have that battle with the old nature. And so what Paul does here, he starts to tell us what actions have to be taken. What do you have to do to overcome the flesh and to reach that unity that he speaks of in Christ. Well, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now here's where you start, according to Paul. In lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. So the resource for accord is, first of all, to consider your reproach. And I mean what we have to do is start evaluating ourselves correctly by God's Word. You see, there's a photograph that everyone has, a picture that you have of yourself in your mind, and that picture that you have there in your nature is not a true representation of who you really are. God has a much different picture. And so what God has provided for us is a mirror, and the mirror is His Holy Word. And when you look into the Word of God, you will find out that you are not as pretty as you think that you are. You don't happen to be great. An examination yields a completely new picture. And you know what it is? The Apostle Paul expressed it. He said, said, I know this, that in my flesh, for that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. He goes on further than that. And he says that that, uh, my throat is just like an open tomb. Isaiah put it in another way. He said, we're full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. We've already talked about what Jeremiah said. We have a desperately wicked heart. And so our eyes are full of lust. Our ears are dull of hearing. And when you look into the Word of God, you are not going to come away with an inflated ego. You can't come away anything other than humiliated. Now, here's the thing. If every one of us, and that includes me, if our hearts were exposed right now, there is not one of us that would do anything other than to run and hide in shame. There's nothing for us to brag about. I mean, we might look good on the outside. Perhaps we do. We dress up for church. We may look nice when we get here. But the poison of asp is under our tongue, the Scripture says. All of the potential for sin that exists in the world is right there in our human hearts right now. And that's because we have this old nature still abiding in us. That's the picture that the Word of God gives. Now, thank the Lord for this. Jesus came and he cleaned up all of that mess. What he did was he gave us a new nature. And so if you're a believer in Christ, now you have his perfect righteousness that's given to you. And so in one measure, at least, that mess is cleaned up. The old nature is still there. You still have to fight against it. But you've also been given a new nature. But the question is, who did that? Who gave you that new nature? Where did that come from? You didn't get it yourself. It had to be given by God. You remember what Paul said to these egotistical Corinthians? He said, for who maketh thee to differ from another? 
And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Now see, folks, what we must do is that we must be broken to realize how we live in humility. Now Christ is different. Christ didn't have to be broken. He was already humble. He already had the characteristic of humility. And that's why in the first place that he allowed himself to be broken. He came in humility. The Bible says he was lowly of mind. You remember when Jesus entered into Jerusalem? How did Jesus go into Jerusalem on that last week? How did he go in? He didn't come in on a white steed and there was no royal crest and no golden saddle that he rode in, on, uh, rode in with. Instead, Jesus came in on a donkey. Jesus came in in lowliness. Now, you compare that to Satan. Satan came along pounding his chest and saying, I will be like the Most High. But Jesus stepped down. We'll study it beginning next week. He stepped down from the highest throat in heaven in humility, and he came riding in on a donkey. Before we're ever going to recognize others first, we have to get a picture of who we really are. What are we? Now, to those very same Corinthians I mentioned a moment ago, the ones that are so proud of themselves, here's what Paul said. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to verse 11. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I want you to pay close attention to a statement that was made by Arthur Pink. He said, There is a notable difference between the sensibilities and expressions of the unconverted and the converted. An unregenerate person who indulges freely in a course of evil practice will nevertheless give a favorable account of himself. He will boast of his good-heartedness, his kindness, his generosity, his praiseworthy qualities and good deeds. On the other hand, persons truly holy, even when kept pure in their outward behavior, yet conscious of their indwelling corruptions, will condemn themselves in unsparing language. The unholy fix their attention on anything good they can find in themselves, and this renders them easy in an evil course. But a truly sanctified person is ready to overlook his spiritual attainments and fruits and fixes his attention with painful consciousness on those respects in which he lacks conformity to Christ. I don't think you could say it better than that. He's telling us, think about who you are. Think about where you came from. And that is a great resource to draw on to reach unity. That's how you get accord with your brother. Now, secondly... A resource for accord is to consider whom you regard. He says, "Let everything be done through strife. Let uh, nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others." If I have the very same picture that Paul had of himself, then what I would say is that I am the chief of sinners. Now, what is the chief of sinners? That means the very worst, doesn't it? It means you can't think of anything worse. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. And even when he talked about his apostleship, he said, I am the least of all the apostles. He never regarded himself highly. 
Well, if you are the worst of sinners and you think about another person, the very worst person that you can think of, what is that person? He's at least a notch above you. He's at least a notch above you. Now, here's what the Scripture says. Let each esteem other better than themselves. And that word better, that's an important word. It's the word, actually, in the Greek, that's the word we get hyper from that word. It means above and beyond. When something is hyper, it's higher. It's above and beyond. It's greater than something else. It's the same word that Paul used when he talked about government in in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. He said, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. And the word higher in that verse is this same word hyper. And the meaning of that is that government is superior to the individual. We must submit to the authority of the government because it's higher than we. Now, later in the apostle or in the epistle, uh, uh, Paul uses the very same word to talk about the excellencies of Christ. They're greater. Now, if we take that thought and we go right back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, the thought is then regard others better because they're higher than you. You see, you're the only one who knows the wickedness of your heart. And if you know that, you can only assume, if you're looking at it rightly, you can only assume there's nobody worse than you are. You know the wickedness of your own heart. And then here in this scripture, the word esteem, that's also an important word because this is a word that doesn't just mean think about it. It means come to a highly considered conclusion. Come to a carefully considered conclusion. It's not just that you lightly regard that it might be true. It's not just that uh, in your heart and your mind, you just sort of believe that it's true. You don't fake it and presumptuously and piously act as if it's true. You actually do believe this. You believe that others are better than you. And so you have this real concern, a sincere compassion for other people when you think like that. You see, if we could ever start thinking like this, petty differences in our church between individuals, those things would stop before they ever got started. This is how we have to think. But then Paul takes the thinking one step further. He says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And so the truth of the passage is not to live for self, but to live for others. That's when you take on the character of Christ. That's when you become like Christ was, and we'll begin studying it next week. He became a servant of men. A servant doesn't start his day uh, doing all the things he wants to do for himself. A servant starts his day by taking care of the master. And Jesus truly was a servant servant. You could call him that because he always had the affairs of everyone else on his mind. That's why Jesus stepped down from the throne of glory. He had others' affairs on his mind. And so in a sinless, or I should say a selfless act of humility... Christ was willing to step down off that throne, looking at the affairs of others. In James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on this passage, he quotes something that was said by Watchman Nee, who was a famous Chinese evangelist who died about 40 years ago. Let me read this to you. I thought it was interesting. He says, Watchman Nee, the Chinese evangelist, tells of a Christian he once knew in China. He was a poor rice farmer, and his fields lay high on a mountain. Every day he pumped water into the paddies of new rice, and every morning he returned to find that a neighbor who lived down the hill had opened the dikes surrounding the Christian's field to let the water fill his own. Now, for a while, the Christian ignored the injustice, but at last he became desperate. He met and prayed with other Christians, 
and came up with this solution. The next day, the farmer rose early in the morning and first filled his neighbor's field. Then he attended to his own. Watchman Nee tells how the neighbor subsequently became a Christian, his unbelief overcome by a genuine demonstration of Christians of a Christian's humility and Christ-like character. Now, do you see what I mean when I say that our natural thinking has to be turned upside down? What do we think about in a case like this? Well, what we do is we get angry about it. We think about retaliation. The thing to do is go into the neighbor's field and pull up all of his plants. Go, go call the law on him. Sue him. Take him to court. Stop this guy any way that you can. But what does Christ say? Christ's humility says, fill his fields first. Now, I want you to think about the last thought. We'll close with this. Jesus said, do this to them, and you've done it to me. Now, take your Bibles, if you would. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. And if you want a reason why you should consider your brother before yourself, why you should consider going out of the way to help someone else and to see that the needs of other people are met, remember what Christ says in this passage. What you've done to others, he says you've done to him. Matthew 25, verse number 31. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them the one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he also uh, say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. To esteem others is not just look on your things, but look on the things of others. And that displays the character of Christ. The question is, who am I? And when you consider who you are and where you came from, when you get that thought down and you understand it, then you're ready to do what he says in this passage. The root of discord is self, and the resource for accord is always others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to spend in your word tonight. I ask you, Lord, that you would help us to be 
the kind of people who follow this example to consider others before ourselves, that we get rid of the discord that's among us, that we have unity among us, and we know that we can only do that as we look to you and work out this change of heart that you've made within us. Help us, Lord, to follow that example. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.